I'm Brian Hu. I'm Ada Singh. And welcome to Saturday School. When your friends are watching Saturday morning cartoons, you're being forced to learn Asian American pop culture history. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Saturday School. This is our eighth season where we're looking at sci-fi films created by Asian Americans. Although today's film, I don't know if the director would even call herself Asian American. I think she has like a troubled relationship with the term. But don't we all? It's fine. And I wonder if she would even call this science fiction. (laughs) That's true. I guess that goes back to the point of our season, which is not that we're super fascinated by Hollywood or superheroes, but more that we're thinking about different ways that Asian Americans have been able to reimagine ourselves through film. Yeah. And even if the filmmaker for today's film wouldn't claim to be part of Asian American cinema, it was definitely made within the circles that also intersected with Asian American cinema. So like Asian Cinevision in New York. Anyways, we can get into all this. Yes. What are we watching? What are we talking about here? So today we're going to be talking about the 1994 film Fresh Kill by Suli Ching. It's written by Jessica Hagedorn, who's a playwright known for dog eaters, and it stars Sarita Chowdhury. So uh, tell us a little bit about Suli Chang. So Suli Chang, she's sort of a multimedia artist. She comes from Taiwan. She was for a long time based in New York City. And so Fresh Kill came out of her time in New York. This is the 1980s and 90s. We're thinking about like identity politics and ways of thinking about art that blow up categories of gender and sexuality and race and that are kind of potentially political. So she was kind of hovering in the New York scene at this time, which included like the art scenes, punk scenes, and also like in terms of Asian American cinema, Asian Cinevision was around. Um, Shirley Chang was a part of this collective called Paper Tiger Television, which is sort of like a, a public access TV that often dealt with issues of the Asian American community. Also hovering in this world would be people like uh, Renee Tajima-Pena and Christine Choi. Rhea Tajiri was part of this too. I mean, like Grace Lee got her start, like sort of dabbling in this world too. I'm um, sort of amazing to think about. Like, like we we don't talk enough about the '80s and '90s in New York City as a unique hotbed that would set the scene for Asian American cinema to come. But Shuli Chang was a part of that. She, I don't think she cared too much. She didn't want to be limited by her association with Asian America. Um, she's always seen herself as sort of interested in multi-ethnic issues. So actually, we, we were thinking about including Fresh Kill in our previous season on Asian American interracial cinema. But I feel like this work makes more sense in our sci-fi season, which is what we're doing today. Um, Shuli Chang was also part of the legendary, and in some cases, notorious 1993 Whitney Biennial. So um, Whitney Biennial is, I think for many decades, considered the pinnacle of American art exhibition, um, but which many people found to be overly white. So in 1993, the organizers decided just to go all the way on the other side, make it like politically, subversively about people who are marginalized, so queer folks and women and people of color. And so Shuli Chang was... Um, was an artist profiled in the biennial. And it's notorious because, I mean, a lot of the white establishment was like, this is not what we came for. These artworks are ugly. They're just provocative. And so the biennial has kind of swung like a pendulum back and forth in the years to come. 
In a recent interview that she just did this year for Newfest in New York, she was talking about Fresh Kill and the casting of it. And when you look at it now, it seems pretty normal casting. I don't know, lack of a yeah, better Yeah, this word. could be an HBO show. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Cast. But back then, she was talking about how anytime you cast a person of color, it was called non-traditional casting. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess this is the context. This was the first time that I watched it. Um, but this is the third time that you've watched it. So what's it like? Because I think like the first time I feel like you don't quite understand everything, but you know that that's not the purpose of this. Yeah. So the first time I watched it, my reaction was mostly, I cannot believe this exists. Right. Asian American artists were doing this in yeah. film at yeah. this time as a feature film. I could see it as like a short experimental film but as a feature do we see this now oh could, could this something like this be made now yeah i, I guess like patrick wang's the bread factory <laughs> has elements of, <laughs> yeah but like it's very rare yeah so that was my first reaction it was more like a i'm just catching my breath the wow factor of the existence of this the existence and also like what it's doing creatively of course the second time i watched it i was approaching it with all right now that i know this exists let me actually try to understand what's going on um and realizing, I don't really understand what's going on. <laughs> and so, so the second time was, I think, more frustrating than the first time for me. And then the third time, which is my most recent time watching it, I think I just realized, okay, let me not try that hard of trying to figure out what's happening. And just admire, like, the things that are being shown and things that aren't being shown and, like, just how much fun they must be having with the construction of all of this. So I think I have a better appreciation for the creative choices it's making. But I'm still no closer to, to like really being able to piece together all of this than I was the first time. Yeah, I think I definitely went into it like, I don't, I'm not going to understand, but <laughs> this is how we should all watch movies. <laughs> no, it totally should, as opposed to like, how does this fit the formula as we know it? Yeah. Which is how we watch genre movies, which is fine. Obviously, that exists for a reason. What it is, is like you, um, you decide whether you trust the artist or not, <laughs> right? Yeah. And then if you trust the artist, you're like, okay, I'm just going to watch. Let's just go for it. I think for this podcast, we're choosing things where we either trust it or even if it's going to be bad, it'll be worth it. <laughs> well, we, we wanted to go on that ride. <laughs> this is the type of season we're having. <laughs> yeah, so let's, let's talk about some of the characters. It's, I think it's easier to talk about the characters than to talk about the story. <laughs> but it, it's fun to talk about the characters because I, I find the characters, they're quirky in the way they're set up like so for instance Sarita Chaudhary plays this woman named Shireen who I think because we know Sarita Chaudhary like from Mississippi Masala so I assume she's South Asian but it turns out her dad is like Native American <laughs> in the movie so like 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 this these these are the kinds of games that this movie's playing with identity and then she's in a relationship with a white woman named Claire and then they have a kid who looks like she's black but Claire's mom is a uh, public access TV talk showy kind of person, like a black TV personality. And none of this is ever explained, like why Claire's mom is black, why her daughter, well, I mean, we don't know anything about the daughter, <laughs> like where the daughter came from. I mean, this must be during Brandy Cinderella times, right? This is before that. It's before that. Oh, it yeah. set the stage for Brandy Cinderella. I know. I mean, this is before Brandy the artist came out. Oh, okay. 1990. I like how it all comes back to Brandy Cinderella. <laughs> <laughs> There's also this um, sushi bar where the sushi chef is this guy named Jen Bing, which I think is like Jen Bing, right? Is that what it's referring to? <laughs> <Is that what laughs> anyway, he's a su sushi chef, and he's played by Abraham Lim. 
And then there's other people who work at the bar, including this Latino guy who's, how would you describe him? I don't know, but he reads poetry really well. Yeah, right, right. So I, I feel like everyone is like on the verge of being some kind of poet in this movie. Yeah, it feels like performance art. Right. And it makes sense then that Jessica Hagedorn coming from theater is involved, as well as, of course, Shuli, who is like a visual artist. And so this, the basic setup has elements of like family comedy or like a workplace comedy. <laughs> and of course, science fiction, because while this is all happening, um, and this is how it ties to the sushi bar, but like there are contaminated fish in the ocean that may be contaminated because of evil conglomerates mm. and, and also potentially U.S. atomic bomb experiments in Okinawa that have uh, contaminated the fish into glowing green monsters that will um, turn... If you eat the fish, your head will glow green. And they're killing cats, right? Yeah, oh, including cats. Right, Cats yeah. will turn green. It's a mix of all of these genres, but it's a mix of different styles and, like you say, like, there's an experimental undercurrent through the whole thing. And to me, that makes the characters more interesting because at any moment, you're not sure what these characters are going to turn into. Yeah, there's moments where... Um... They break the fourth wall. They seem like they're talking at the camera, but not really talking to you, more like delivering some spoken word. There's a scene in a bar where instead of having actual small talk chit chat, the people at the bar are just like spewing out words. I don't know. So it just has kind of this musicality. The dialogue has a has a certain rhythm meter to it. Yeah. And part of that meter is occasionally the order of the words doesn't make sense grammatically. And then, of course, like there's sound effects and also the way it's edited. The way it goes from character to character, it moves around in the scene. There's like text that comes on the screen. And then just to sort of kind of give a sense of the visuals a little bit. I mean, I feel like this whole season connects together because when you look at it, it's very Nam Jun Pek, isn't it? Like Very. There's a <laughs> definite line between Nam Jun Pek and Fresh Kill. So that takes place in Staten Island, like out in the streets. And there's just like this row of televisions stacked on top of each other for no reason. That's totally Nam Jun Pek and totally, yeah. TV Garden. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's sort of like, like, can we make a movie in that world? Yeah, yeah. But with Nam Jun Pek, he saw it as sort of like this utopic TV and our organic worlds are all combining. And like, what is that future going to look like for us? With Fresh Kill, it seems a little bit more something like dystopian, even though it's really fun. Like you get the sense that it's fun to live in a TV media world. But there's criticism. Yeah, there's definitely yeah. criticism because... Because this is, it's not quite like a TV garden. It's like a TV wasteland. Right. And Fresh Kill refers to an actual garbage dump in this movie. Yes. And so is TV part of our ecological waste? I think that would be the argument. <laughs> right. Are the rays coming out of your TVs akin to the radioactive fish that are in the waters waiting to infect us? Yeah. And then um, the guy that Abraham Lim plays is a sushi chef slash hacker. And so there's a sense that like there are all of these new technologies like whether TV or the internet, I think about internet in 1994, technologies of control, right? Like, so you have all these corporations that are buying up TV stations. Like, that, that's actually a theme in here. Um, like, the, the company that, that makes the radioactive cat food also owns the TV channel. And so can we trust them? But TV is also the space in which you have public access. The internet is also a space of, of hackers and this sort of like African unity collective, this political collective that are living online. And so, yeah, these new technologies as mind control, but also as a way to subvert also through hacking, which I don't, 
Like, how many films were about hacking in 1994? I guess there was War Games, <laughs> the, the Matthew Broderick movie. I mean, according to Wikipedia, the film was noted for its influence on hacker subculture. Because the film, it played in a lot of film festivals. It was an official selection in Berlin. It was at the Toronto International Film Festival. But it really didn't have that much of a post-life. This film didn't become like a DVD hit or anything. Like it sort of remained in the underground, which perhaps also makes it even more kind of authentic for a subculture. Yeah, but I think recently that's what um, I was referring to earlier with the New Fest Q and A that I watched. They screened it recently as part of a, um, I guess, a series called Queering the Canyon. So I feel like people are kind of bringing it back and discovering it. I first watched the film in 2019 when Asian Cinevision's Asian American International Film Festival in New York screened a 35mm print of it. Oh. And Shirley Chang was there. It was such an eye-opening experience. I mean, like, 1994, you're thinking about the wedding banquet. And when we think about, like, Asian American cinema in New York at that time, like, that's the picture I have. Whereas this one explodes that notion. Even, like, both of them are queer texts, but Fresh Kill feels queer, whereas Wedding Banquet feels Confucian. <laughs> Yeah, Wedding Banquet is very, um, it's a rom-com. The Wedding Banquet is about negotiating with your parents. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fresh Kill negotiates with nobody. Fresh Kill is just purposefully confusing you. But doing it in a way that shows how much it loves the media, too, at the same time that it is critical of it. Like, I don't know how how you felt. Like, to me, watching this film, it's like somebody else is switching the channels on TV on me. Yeah, 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 yeah. And the editing conforms to that. Like, the editing between scenes happens so quickly. The jarring sound changes when we go from one to another. And then sometimes we actually watch people on TV, which also gives that effect. Like, we're just cut in with, like, random commercials from the evil conglomerate empire. And then their tagline is, we care. (laughs) And then we get, like, commercials for, like, cat food and stuff. And so that's all sprinkled in to this fast cutting between all these different characters. So maybe she's just, like, latching on to a different pace and a different like kind of attention span of this new media world in that sense like this is very it feels very contemporary yeah it feels very modern in a lot of ways but also feels a little laser man (laughs) from our last episode i mean laser man is just it's kind of a terrible comparison because laser man is just sort of sloppy whereas this one is very like you know she knows what she's doing like every cut here is here to push buttons here to like make us ask questions here to dazzle you yeah and it's very dazzling like it's this is a movie that's like fun to look at yeah um all the fish in this movie and their lips. The production design. This is one scene where there's two guys. I think the background is probably some sort of jazz music. And then one guy's reading from... I looked this up because I was like, what is he reading from? He's reading from Dream Tigers, poetry from this Argentine poet. And then the other guy's reading a manual about how radioactive materials have been found. (laughs) (laughs) I guess that's why it feels like performance art and poetry and theater... Because something about the mix of the music and reading how people need to evacuate and poetry in Spanish. I don't know. You're just sort of, it's that kind of movie where you're like, I don't know what's going on, but it's, <laughs> I'm here for it. <laughs> Instead of thinking about like, what does it mean? It's more like the sort of velocity that it suggests and like the breaking down of time and space. It feels like a dance. Yeah, that's like a dance of people from so many different parts of the world. And the camera doesn't seem to care the sequence in which it's showed to us. It just happens all at once. Yeah. And also, like, there's certain scenes that suddenly you're in Taiwan, and, and you're like, 
watching indigenous people in Taiwan. <laughs> and you're like, wait, what channel am I on now? That feeling. Which is also very... Back to Namjoon Pak. Very Namjoon Pak, exactly, right? Like, it's his... TV Garden, back to TV Garden. Yeah, and his, his, his experiments of, like, connecting people live across the world at the same time. Yeah. Oh, and there's also, like, a really random five-second scene with a woman playing a cello, <laughs> right. and I yeah. think she's naked. I... <laughs> I was just like, this is totally... Back to Namjoon Pak, yeah. <laughs> But this film has a very different way of thinking about the international. Namjoon Pick is not that political. He just thinks about us as like, you know, like we're, we're one big global family. Whereas Julie Chang, like she sees the lines drawn between Western capital and the developing world. And she really indulges creatively and aesthetically in how are we going to create a certain kind of like aesthetic vivacity of the third world and like all of our connections, looking at it as a very technologically savvy collective of people from around the world who just collide on the internet. And so, yeah, it's like, the whole thing is like a post-apocalyptic wasteland, but it's also a space of like where the electronic currents in the air can connect you in weird ways and who knows where it's going to take you. Tell me more about watching it in 2019 for Asian Cinevision. Like, did you get a sense of how people were seeing it? It's not really written about very much, and in terms of like an Asian American film canon, which I know we've talked about and invested a lot of energy in, this film is not, it's, it's not well known enough, it hasn't circulated enough to be like a Chan is Missing, for instance. Mm. But luckily, it's been sort of brought back into the spotlight through sentient art films, a program called My Sight is Lined with Visions, which is co-curated by Abby Sun and Keisha Knight. And so it's, it's included in that series, and that series is focused on I guess you can say like 1990s experimental Asian American film, of which this is kind of a crowning achievement. So yeah, so maybe increasing knowledge of this film, and you mentioned the screening at New Fest, but also like how do we contextualize a movie like this? What is it a part of? And, and sadly, like film history works by having categories. Think about the French New Wave or the new queer cinema. So, so like does this fit within... The new queer cinema? Is it part of Asian American cinema? Is it part of kinds of like the visual arts in New York at this time? In some ways, it's part of all of them. What happens with stuff like that if you can't categorize it because they don't want you to categorize it? Right. So maybe the way to categorize it is as experimental film. And then that's sort of like a different canon altogether. That's a canon that's like notoriously hard to remember because so much of it exists not on DVD, not on streaming, but in spaces that are a little bit more ephemeral or sort of like you had to be there. So it was kind of a nice surprise to see it at the Asian American International Film Festival, which I mean, honestly, like the Asian American cinema just in general right now doesn't really embrace experimental cinema. Let alone see it on 35 millimeter. But what Shuli has talked about is that in the 1980s and 90s, just the nature of New York City, right? Like everyone lives so close to each other. Their building that she was working at was close to Asian Cinevision's building and the basement workshop and all these like key centers of artists just hanging out, doing work, commenting on each other's stuff, collaborating. It was all happening like in the same few blocks from each other. And of course, you're around the politics. So AIDS was a big part of how a lot of artists at this time were starting to think about bodies and community and activism. And so that also informs, I think, some of the uh, both the play, but also the urgency of a movie like Fresh Kill. And also like Third World Newsreel was around there. So the feeling like uh, we can tie all of this art making to explicitly political filmmaking that is about the liberation of people around the world. And even if it wasn't, if it was sort of like underground, like the idea that you can make this semi-futuristic story that where this is the above ground, 
where it's like after whatever it feels a post-apocalyptic but they never talk about an actual apocalypse but sort of like after whatever moment there is these are the people on the streets and these are the friends these are people who are friends and colliding with each other and it's artists it's queer folks it's sushi chefs poets it's so fun and like as a vision of of a something else which is like that's the spirit of science fiction right like like let's create a world that doesn't resemble ours um, that may be one of the future, that may be one of a dystopic world where it, it's the way it is because it's scary, but also like a hopeful world because it's one where we can make different kind of connections and speak in different languages and people might understand us. Yeah, and it feels like now. I mean, it's very like internet-y. The way we think about like hyperlinks and like that we're constantly moving from one tab to another. This could have worked in our Troublemaker season. Oh, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> But I think as we're saying with like Nam Jun Paik and like all these other connections, I like that it is part of a tradition, if we can call it, a tradition that we are naming of Asian American science fiction. <laughs> that is going to confuse people. But, but I'll let them be confused. I'm okay yeah. with that. The end. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like joyous. It's like a certain kind of joyous cacophony. And I think this film captures that really well. I love that, yeah. Actually, cacophony is wrong. Like, cacophony makes us sound like this is not musical. No, for scratch that, scratch that. I think cacophony can be music. Yeah, yeah. It's not not music. <laughs> <laughs> I'm totally going to keep that in. No one's going to know what we're talking about. You know what? We reward our listeners who actually listen to our previous episodes. We're just rewarding ourselves for remembering <laughs> things from a few months ago. <laughs> It's very difficult in the pandemic time to remember stuff from a few months. Yeah. Luckily, we can say with absolute certainty that our listeners can watch this movie. Yeah. You don't have to fly to San Francisco. You don't have to, like, <laughs> commit any piracy. I know. Is this the first one in this season where... You can technically buy robot stories. For, like, $60 or $200? People don't have DVD players anymore, apparently. But you have the internet, and you can find Fresh Kill as part of the series called My Sight is Lined with Visions. Again, I can't, I can't say enough like how much I appreciate this program. It's hosted by a distribution, company's the wrong word, distribution initiative called Sentient Art Film. And yeah, you could just rent it for six bucks online. And it is truly one of the more groundbreaking moments in American cinema, period. Our waterways have become the national oil reserves. We get to make the largest Molotov cocktails. Would you care to join us? Saturday School is a proud member of Potluck, a collective of podcasts that feature stories and voices from the Asian American community. It's produced by me and Brian. Our logo is by Grace Tallis Lee. Our theme song is courtesy of Rimsky Music and Premium Beat. Check out our website at SaturdaySchoolPodcast.com, or you can tweet us. I'm at Ada Singh, A-D-A-T-S-E-N-G. Brian's at Who's Brian, H-U-S-B-R-I-A-N. And the podcast Twitter handle is WakeUpSatSchool. Class Dismissed. Hi, I'm Quincy Cho. And I'm Kay Khan Apu. And we host Marvel Makeup. It's a podcast where I teach Quincy a little about Marvel. And I teach Kay a little bit about makeup. Join us as we watch and talk about every movie and TV show in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which I'm mostly watching for the first time. And join us as we apply makeup stuff to our faces, which I'm using for the first time. Marvel Makeup is part of the Potluck Podcast Collective, and you can find new episodes every other Monday wherever you listen to podcasts. 
and you can catch video versions of Marvel Makeup on our YouTube channel. So please rate, review, and subscribe. And please give us five stars so our Asian moms will understand why we buy so much electronic equipment. Because it's for this podcast, Marvel Makeup.